0: This is Kim Weeks with the DC Yoga Podcast. I'm really happy to be here hosting the show today in place of Chris Parkinson, who started this show a few years ago to create an archive of the stories and voices of DC Yoga teachers, longtime teachers, and studio owners. Um, I first want to thank Matt and Molly at the Hyrick House. They're with HeartCast Media helping us make this happen. And so our intrepid sound engineer, Matt, is making it all happen happen. So I'm really happy to be here with you, Doug Keller, whose reputation precedes you. Um, Doug, you have a an undergraduate and master's in philosophy, which you just let me know you decided to take on during the Reagan years and then went <laughs> on to live in an ashram for 14 years and after that decided to teach yoga. So the story of your yoga career, which has included how many books?
1: Um, three books. Three well, books. Four, two volumes of one.
0: Three books, right? Exactly, which many of us um, teach from. I know so many people who still teach from your books, and also world, lots of world travel with your teaching. In fact, I think the reason that I wound up not studying with you after a while is because you were just not
1: away so, yeah, much. not there so much anymore.
0: <laughs> so, without any further ado, we're super excited to do this as a double episode because I know there's so much um, that you have to say, or at least so many questions I have to ask. Mm-hmm. So let's start at the very beginning. Can you tell me about your very first yoga class, your first yoga experience?
1: Um, it was more a yoga experience in the sense of of meditation and that aspect of yoga. The Hatha yoga actually came much, much later. Uh, I always had an interest in spirituality and, and sort of like a personal, existential stake in pursuing spiritual philosophy. So for that reason, I went to college. And during my undergraduate years here at Georgetown, um, initially wanted to be a lawyer until I realized I didn't want to be. (laughs) (laughs) Especially after working with lawyers in D.C. They're fine people, but that wasn't me. And at the same time realized that I was drawn to the philosophy classes, not just out of personal interest, but just because I enjoyed studying it and talking about it. And so I started to pursue teaching philosophy as a career, so I went to graduate school at Fordham, which mm-hmm. is like the sister school to Georgetown. And in the course of that, encountered one guy who came to campus to give free meditation classes, more like practical medica- meditation for helping memory and that sort of thing. But he's mm-hmm. also studying with a guru who happened to be in upstate New York for the summer, Swami Muktananda, was a Siddha mm-hmm. Yoga. And so Siddhi during Siddha Yoga. Siddha Yoga. S- yeah. And that's in the Kashmir Shaivism Tantric tradition of philosophy. So that summer I had a chance to go up and meet him and spend weekends. I'd drive up on the weekends. It was up in the Catskills and have a retreat experience. So my first experience was of meditation and the practices yeah. connected with that, like mantra and chanting and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And, um, uh,
0: and this is what year? I was like, let's, we, we was, did talk about dating you before the show started, <laughs> now it's on.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was from 1980 to 1981, and okay. then he passed away in 1982. Oh. Uh, they had uh, a branch ashram in New York City on the Upper West Side, mm. and so on weekends or whenever I had a chance, I'd go down for programs because they had free meditation programs. So for years, it was very oh, much... Oh, from
0: Fordham. Yeah, I'd mm-hmm. travel
1: down from Fordham, just take the subway. Mm-hmm down and so for years my main uh, experience was of meditation mm. and everything connected with that and from time to time they do a little asana class it was years later that I had my first asana class in a big group setting mm. and it really did add a new dimension to everything that I've been doing mm. uh, honestly intellectually I couldn't quite see the connection between flexible hamstrings and meditation totally. initially which is a question that a lot of people have. Yeah. And, um, and it's not simply about just sitting comfortably, but I came to realize as I started to take some classes, there's something about the more clear flow of energy that takes place when the body is energized by that practice. And literally the prana is flowing. Mm. The meditation is just that much clearer and deeper. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I was, on staff at the ashram for a couple of years and then invited to go to the India ashram to mm. be on staff there and just to participate in uh, maintaining the place. It was an international retreat center. People mm-hmm. came from all over the world. Where in uh, India? Uh, it's just about 90 kilometers outside of Mumbai, mm. out in the countryside, in a very ancient part of the countryside of India it has a lot of tradition to it. There's a temple of Vajeshri that goes back to the first millennium. And even the, the mountains around it, according to legend, were the mountains where Rama stopped when he was seeking Sita. So oh, cool. there was a lot of history to the whole area. And, and actually, from time to time, a number of sadhus would kind of like come through and do their practices in these mm. hills or mountains. Cool. Not that I had a lot of contact with them, because honestly, they're kind of scary people sometimes. Yeah, so I, I know. It's I, I kept some distance from them. Yeah. Um, but I was on staff, and it was funny when I got there, I thought, well, I have a background in philosophy and yada, yada, so they'll probably have me teach meditation courses. And so I go up to the the desk where they assign you your task you're going to do, and they sent me to the kitchen. Oh. So for the next few years, I was stirring pots in the kitchen. And, oh my and it was a couple of years before they even trusted me to put salt in the food because they thought I'd mess it up. Because oh, really? I really didn't know much about um cooking anyways so it was a (laughs) nice it was a nice bit of stretching for the ego at that point
0: yeah and
1: from from the kitchen I worked uh moved to work in the gardens Mm -hmm. and they had extensive gardens around there that we maintain as part of a retreat center uh during all seasons of the year Mm -hmm. and in retrospect I I understand it was that whole process, whether it was intentional or not, mm-hmm. was getting me out of my intellectual head that I developed from years and being in college and just thinking and speaking from an intellectual level so that after those years, as they started to do trainings for teachers to teach hatha yoga as part of the retreat experience, I was drawn to that and found I was coming to or approaching the practice from a very different place, which mm-hmm. was not that intellectual place the intellectual side of me still bubbles up from time to time quite obvious for my book so I'm, I'm a recovering intellectual in that <laughs> sense um, but but the whole there's support <laughs> groups for that. yeah their support <laughs> groups for that. yeah yoga classes too yeah. they get tired of you going going on too far um but in any case I could see how that was a whole organic process which I think is part of the whole process of yoga itself which is to get you back into the body and embodied as part of your yoga experience right and so uh the hatha yoga experience came as a much more organic step that came later on in the whole process
0: i mean it sounds almost i don't know literally is the right word to use it sounds like i'm on uh What's the show with Amy Poehler? Have you seen that one? The
1: um, uh, Parks and Recreation. Yeah,
0: literally. <laughs> literally. <laughs> literally. <laughs> so I don't know if it is, but it sounds like it was in actual fact an organic experience because there yeah. you were having to alchemize the food and then put your hands in the soil and yeah. think about the seasons and how things yeah. grow. And Well, I
1: kind of get a sense of how, I mean, our, our temperament is very much connected to our environment and uh. there are certain it's like... Being with food and cooking with food, on the mm. one hand, is a grounding experience. Mm. On the other hand, me being a redhead, I have a certain amount of heat mm-hmm. uh, temperamentally at times. And mm. working in the kitchen, you—it's the cooking shows on TV these days are very accurate because all the cooks are very temperamental people, mm. so they got right. a lot of fire. Right. And all the cooks I worked with had more fire than me. So after a couple of years of cooking, it kind of burnt that fire out of me. Oh, so I was more even-tempered, but I was literally working with flames all the time right I even right. had an interesting and instructive experience because I was you know we, we were cooking for hundreds sometimes thousands of people so we whoa. had these big gas burners and these big pots the size of Turkish baths and everything mm, and whoa. so and so you're stirring that stuff and there are flames licking up the side of the pot and I did this for years and never got burnt never had a problem uh, but one day I went in and I was—I just remember I was angry about something. Mm. And in the process of cooking the food, the flames were licking up the pot and my arms got burnt for the first time. And it was something about my temperament that just kind of like drew that burn from the flames, if you totally. will. So I kind of got a sense in working with the elements, I was also working with myself. You go from fire in the kitchen to earth and during monsoon, a lot of water in, in uh, the monsoon season. So it was very much getting grounded by the elements and having that as a basis to move forward in and deeper into a yoga practice.
0: Totally. Yeah. That, it, it, I mean, on this podcast, I have no idea. Cause I haven't heard all, sorry, Chris, <laughs> I haven't listened to all of them. But that's gotta be one of the best answers to tell us about your <laughs> <first yoga laughs> experience that we've ever had. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. It's like, which yoga experience are you talking about? Well, I know it's yeah. true. I think yeah. a lot
0: of people, you know, it's, I've listened of course to a bunch and think back to my own experience, whatever, you know, a lot of people point to one moment in time when, you know, they entered an actual yoga class, or some people had like moms who did yoga, so they just like came along for the ride. You know, so, yeah. but, but this, but this anyway, that was an organic answer yeah. to be redundant. Yeah, I, along, mm-hmm. along
1: the way, I did have meditation experiences that pretty profound. I mean, first in yeah. the ashram and and the essence back of in a, New
0: York or in India.
1: Uh, first in New York when uh-huh. I first started going, because I mean, before that, while I was in graduate school and undergraduate, mm-hmm. I was interested in meditation and dabbling in it. So mm-hmm. at that time was all the Zen books that were out. Zen right. flesh. and Zen bones. So yep. uh, which interesting at the Zen at the, bones and what yeah, else? Zen flesh and Zen bones. Uh-huh, interesting at the end of that book, they have a tantric text, the Vijnana Bhairava, which has nothing to do with Zen whatsoever, but it's actually mm-hmm. from the Kashmir Shaivis and tradition mm-hmm. that was introduced years later, and it gave more meditation techniques. Mm-hmm. And I resonated with that, but still I was trying to do like the Zen style where you sit in yeah. front of a blank wall and just yeah. like yeah. still your mind and go it, blank. Yeah. It didn't give you a lot to work with so it was a lot of effort to kind of like you know struggle with it. Yeah, totally. And when it came to the ashram first, they gave you a few more tools to work with, like mantra, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and more instruction about sitting. Uh, but also the experience was spontaneous in the sense that you you kind of like get yourself into that space and then suddenly you would drop into a deeper place mm-hmm. that you didn't get yourself to. Mm. And there was this whole aspect that part of the nature of yoga is as much as you prepare the seat for meditation, it's meditation that comes and sits in the seat. Totally. And I had a deep experience while I was at the ashram. This which, is still New York. This is still New York. And, you know, given a somewhat skeptical nature, I'm like, maybe it's something about the environment that was sort of like auto-suggestion. But then right. uh, I went back to school. And in school, Fordham was in the Bronx, and so I was living in a house Outside of the school in the Bronx, and this is like, you know, close to South Bronx, and got up one morning to meditate and had an even deeper spontaneous experience then than I had in the ashram. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, it's not just about being in the ashram. It's right. about something inside me is moving or changing. Totally. And so that gave me a real introduction into uh, what meditation was about in its essence, which is beyond simply the effort that you make, though it takes effort to get to that place.
0: Beyond simply the effort that you take.
1: Yeah, that you make. I mean, that's that's always the balance between, you know, grace and self-effort. And to me, grace basically means when something happens for you that you didn't do for yourself. Right. It comes as a gift or a surprise, and that makes, it it wakes you up to the reality that's there beyond simply the efforts that you're making.
0: Right, exactly. And that is what, that's the realization you began to make, because obviously that's the kind of realization one makes on a daily, if not intra-daily basis, right? Yeah. And so that started at the ashram in New York? Yeah, yeah, that was my
1: first, it was August, uh, actually I started going around July, but I had that experience actually in August 15th. 15th. Oh my gosh. during a big celebration and it was a, a morning meditation. And so yeah, there were moments like that and then when I went back to the to the apartment after that, that And happened.
0: so in that so t- I want to know more about that specifically because it does sound like that. Well, obviously it's kept you coming back, but it, but that experience was did you find yourself over time or even immediately attached to the sensation like I'm going to go back and find that and it would yeah. be elusive or
1: well that's the problem of of having a profound experience because the experience of meditation is a moving target it's never the same from moment to moment and you get attached to that initial experience as being the most perhaps dramatic or profound mm-hmm. largely because it was came as such a surprise mm. which is its nature but when you keep trying to refer back to that original experience as kind of the touchstone of what meditation is you you miss what's actually happening from day to day as you come back to your practice. And, right. and uh, I think the deeper you get into the practice, the more subtle the transformation that takes place. And what I experienced over time as I practiced meditation while in college, while, while in graduate school studying this stuff, um, was not so much what happened in the meditation, but in retrospect seeing how I was changing over time. It's like little bad habits that you know uh, problems with you know procrastination things like that that made it harder to be a good student they started mm-hmm. to fall away and i felt less obstacles even less emotional resistance or mm-hmm. issues in different ways and so mm-hmm. something inside me was changing sometimes it even came out as sort of like an a, an emotional eruption in the moment and then took a good look at that emotion and then realized that it kind of like popped and was out, I could let it go. Right. And so it's that sort of uh, cleaning process that takes a place over time, which is not, it's happening in deep meditation and you're not aware of it. Even if the meditation doesn't seem deep, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what you think about whether it's deep or not. Right. It's exactly. happening. Right. And then it's only in retrospect that you start to appreciate what this what the process is meant to you. Right. Exactly. Over time.
0: Exactly. So so the question I was asking was you know that August 15th experience that and and whether or not that was the um, propulsive force that kept you going and going back for more and it sounds like kind of yes right and so that was August 15th of some year in the 80s Yeah, it was uh, 1980.
1: Mm -hmm, 1980
0: itself? Yeah. Okay. And it was
1: actually, it was a significant date because it was a celebration of when Muktananda was initiated by his teacher Uh and had his first deep experience of that. Are you serious? Yeah. And so, I mean, there's a big celebration with thousands of people there uh, just to come and chant, meditate, and then Mm -hmm. to go up and greet him. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm. with him, you had this sense of, he was connected with what was happening for people. Because I'm in a room of thousands of people. Mm. And I've actually, I started to have this one experience right as the program started. I was actually in a separate room. Mm. And it was sort of like being physiologically deconstructed down to the atomic level Mm -hmm. and then put back together again. It's very Mm. hard to explain, but Mm -hmm. it's sort of like you're melting into yourself Mm -hmm. and then you're back again, which Mm -hmm. was both Scary and thrilling at the same time. At the end of the program, I came into the room and everybody was going up just to greet him, at least a bow or, you know, give some gesture of respect, even though there wasn't always a lot of communication. Mm -hmm. But long before I came up on the line, it's like out of this room of thousands of people, he just looked over me and zeroed in on me. And there was just this kind of look in his eyes where he knew what was going on with me. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was more obvious than I thought. I don't know if I had tears streaming down my face or something. But it was that that sense of that kind of connection like something's happened for you. And he always said he had sort of like a radar where he could feel what was happening with people and see. And his point was always... I didn't give this to you. This is something that happened for you from the inside. Mm. And I'm just aware of that, or Mm -hmm. I'm the conduit through which sometimes you have that experience as Mm -hmm. your focus. Mm -hmm. And so that just impressed upon me. This is part of just the human experience of how we, in different ways and at different times, have these turning points inside. Like you're saying, after that turning point, um, There wasn't the same world to come back to. It was the same world, but it wasn't the same world to come back to.
0: Right. And how did you manage that? I mean, how... See, there you were in New York, and this amazing experience happens, and you're seen by your guru. Mm -hmm. I mean, could I call him your guru? He was your guru? Yeah. I do want to ask about that. But, you know, you've been seen by your guru in this experience in which you have been deconstructed to the atomic level and reconstructed (laughs) back out again, which I relate to and really understand. It's Mm -hmm. happened to me also and so I don't know, people listening, like I hope a lot of people out there have also, you know, can really relate to that because yeah. this is the, the heart of what, you know, we're yeah doing, we'll, I guess. We often
1: call it peak experiences. Yeah, like yeah, exactly. this, just a moment of awe in one exactly. way or another yeah. where it's just, you know, you open yeah. up and you're not that same person for that moment and that moment changes you.
0: It's totally. To- for me, yeah, it's just it's silence. There's nothing I can't, mm-hmm. I can't, there's nothing to, there was... In these moments, there have been nothing for me to say. And that's I love that so much. Yeah. I love that there's nothing to yeah. say. I feel that love in there somehow. Yeah. Um, and so you're, you're seen by your guru, it's August 15th, and you had decided at that point to stay, but I think I heard you say you had just gotten there. And so was that the reason that you stayed there in the ashram in New York um, for a while? Well, at that and
1: point, that was still during the summer, and I still had school to come oh, back to. Right, so I, I was lucky oh, yeah. enough, I had a fellowship at Fordham, so I was able mm. to do the graduate degree and not be in huge debt I was just lucky yeah. for that yeah. and uh yeah kind of an answer to your question I heard behind the question is like what do you do with that experience well first I tried to over dramatize it for myself <laughs> of course and then that doesn't work No. and it's like it's okay <laughs> exactly. it's back to normal you go right. back to classes <laughs> right. and you sort of yeah. absorb and marinate in it some and right. just kind of integrate it into the life that you were living before you went up there that weekend right right you know and so uh, that that August, that was the beginning. I had basically a week there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually, it was it was an interesting moment where I was there for a couple of days, and I really, you know, as a graduate student, didn't have much money. I mm. had a van that my mom gave me I could use to drive up there. But I was running out of money. I had to go back, and I ran into a friend in the line who's also a graduate student. He's like, how are you doing? I was like, well, I have to go back tomorrow. I'm out of money. It's like, oh, I can take care of that. He pulled out this big water bills and just gave me enough money to pay for my food and stuff. Mm. I was actually staying in a um, a camping ground up the road because I couldn't afford to stay in the ashram. Mm-hmm. So I slept in the back of the van at night, and I came to the ashram during the day and did worked in the kitchen, did different service like that. But mm-hmm. at least I had enough money yeah to stay. So that gave me a whole week to be there. Then I went back. School started up, and uh-huh. then. You know, Friday nights I go down to Manhattan and take part in the meditation. Got program. it. Okay. So but otherwise, nice. it was still another couple years of graduate education. Yeah. And did everything but the thesis mm-hmm. and for the PhD, and it got mm-hmm. to the point of. Making a choice of whether I could spend a couple of years writing something nobody would read. Right. <laughs> <That> <laughs> it uh,
0: sounds <clears throat> like you may have been losing interest in writing anyway. Is that true? Uh,
1: yeah. Well, it's as nothing was coming to me. I was already teaching classes on a college level, both yeah. at Fordham and, and uh, part time at other universities mm-hmm. at an adjunct level, and at the same time, I realized I was teaching these classes from an intellectual level, right. you know, from uh, saying things that I'd learned from books yeah. and the students were coming back with things that they'd heard from their parents. And mm-hmm. I'm like, these are like two ships passing in the night because mm. it's, what I had to say was not grounded in any experience. And so it tended to be at that intellectual level. And so for me, it came to the choice to, I want to go deeper into an experience that makes it real or do I want to keep reading books and writing about books that I've read? Mm. And so at that point, I had the opportunity to go more on staff. I actually took my last few dollars and got a ticket to Los Angeles where um, Muktanandar's successor was doing a month-long retreat in L.A. Mm -hmm. And... Arrived there not knowing what I'd do or where I'd stay and hardly had any money. Mm-hmm. I walked in and one of my friends was there and he put me on staff right away in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. So again, that was like my magic carpet they ride They keep putting you in the kitchen. I do yeah, hear I that you're in yeah, the I kitchen a lot. Yes. Kitchen. Yeah, I keep <laughs> putting in the kitchen. Which has benefited yeah. on many levels because yeah. I realized in hindsight I had no concept how to cook or yeah. how to eat properly until... I was there. That's so. amazing.
0: So yeah. yeah, so okay, so uh this is at the end of what would have been your masters. Yeah, this
1: is like 1985. Okay. okay. Um, January 1985. And you're in the and kitchen
0: in LA and so did yeah. you stay there? Um a while? I
1: had the chance to come back to South Fallsburg, which is in the Catskills. Mm-hmm. Came back there and thought I was staying for a year or mm. so and I actually stayed a year for, there for a year working in the kitchen mm-hmm. and then had the chance to go on staff in India. That's when and we get so, to India. It's and so my ticket was paid to India. Oh. I thought I was going for a year. It ended up the first day was about four years. I came back to the Catskill Ashram for a year and then went back for another three and a half. So it was about seven and a half years in India.
0: Whoa! and that was, and that constitutes then your ashram experience. That gets us to the nineties, does it not? Yeah. Well, Whoa. between,
1: um, I mean, I was seven years in the Catskills ashram, seven years in India, okay. so four, 14 oh, years wow. overall. So yeah, yeah.
0: And so what was the difference? But I mean, there's so many questions I have. I, I kind of still mm. want to ask about Muktananda, what it was like to study with um, a man like that and then have him die, you know, like right, yeah. act right as you got there and, what that how that changed the New York ashram and then what happened you know or what you saw of his legacy once you got to India so there's a couple questions in there so let maybe start first with like what was it like to study with him have that experience that transmission really I would call it or at least yeah. seeing and recognition
1: well uh, I just had, you know, less than a year where I'd go up when I could during mm-hmm. the summer. And mm-hmm. Otherwise, you'd see videos of mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. And one respect, it was not a close personal contact mm-hmm. relationship. It was mm-hmm. more listening to his talks. And then at the end of each program, you could go up and Darshan or at least bow or pay your respects. But there wasn't, there weren't really words exchanged, though there was definitely a feeling of his presence. And... Uh, very clear to me that there was some kind of energy radiating through him that wasn't the same thing as him because right. he could, at times, you felt it very clearly, and at other times, you just felt like an ordinary person standing next to you. Yeah, totally. And, and he talked about that too. It's, it's yeah. like it's not me, it's you know, yeah. I, I can turn it up, I can turn it down, yeah, but it was more about a reflection of my relationship to what was going on inside of me or to my own self. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly what he had to say in his talks, because he was versed in yoga philosophy and, and had studied all of it. I mean, he spent 40 years wandering around India looking for a teacher and he actually
0: That's amazing. he
1: ended up with the teacher he started with because when he was a young boy in school I mean he came from a wealthy family um, but he wasn't the first born in the family in India it's the firstborn right. that gets the inheritance right. and while he was in school the sadhu came walking through and the sadhu Nityananda would go to these different schools and he'd he'd go out and take a walk with the kids that sort of thing and not say much and one day he walked up and just kind of tapped Muktananda at the head. His name wasn't Muktananda at the time. And after that, something shifted, and he just mm-hmm. kind of left school and went on, off on this trek mm-hmm. to find a teacher and met all these teachers along the way. And after 40 years of doing this, he comes to Ganeshpuri and finally meets this teacher that gives him the sort of... that kind of fit his model of how, what a what a yoga guru is supposed to be in mm-hmm. terms of his personality and everything, because there are many different personalities out there. And it turns out it was the same teacher that tapped him on the head 40 years earlier. Oh, my gosh. But he stayed there, settled down, was given a hut up the road um, from Nityananda's ashram. And that little hut eventually turned into the ashram that I stayed at. It expanded and acquired um, more land. That's right. And Nityananda passed away in 1961. And then mm-hmm. in the 70s, Muktananda started to teach. Okay, um, got it. But, so it wasn't a direct transmission of personal teaching or contact or interaction mm-hmm. in that sense which i think in some ways made it more profound for me because the problem of being close to anybody who mm-hmm. is in the position of a of a guru is the fact that that person is still a human being, right? See all the flaws. Yeah, yeah. And it's, he says, you know, he always said it's it's always darkest underneath the lamp or underneath the torch, mm-hmm. because that's you know where you see the personality of the person, totally. and, and people can get caught up in projecting onto that personality things that don't really relate to what is really going on on that deeper mm-hmm. inner level. Mm-hmm. So I was lucky for that. I did have an experience. I mean, I was uh, for months I couldn't. Go to the ashram because I was doing finals, my graduate work. And one night I was sleeping, I was kind of woken up by this sort of energy passing through me, and I could hear like the mantra being chanted out there somewhere. And I thought that's weird and woke up. And then a day later my roommate comes down and was not involved in any of this and he had just heard on the radio, he said, oh, I'm sorry to hear your guru died. Oh, my God. And I, I had yeah. no clue about this and it was on the night that that happened that he had actually passed away in yeah. India. Yeah. Was in, that was 1982. Yeah. And so, again, that just impressed upon me. It's, it's like there was that connection, even though there wasn't outward communication.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, interconnection being, how would you define that at this moment?
1: Um... It's not a connection to a person, but it's a feeling that if you turn inside, there's a process of self-awareness going inside that allows you to bring up the things that you can let go of. Mm -hmm. And also you expand your awareness of who you are as presence, as consciousness, Mm -hmm. as as an energy Mm -hmm. uh, that can be expressed in different ways. And... Uh, that's always expressed in the Tantric tradition in terms of these ideas of Shiva and Shakti, where Shiva represents self-awareness, but Shakti, the feminine energy, is inseparable from Shiva and is the creative expression of that energy. And Mm so in meditation, in a sense, you're going... To the source from which your thoughts arise, because we're aware of the thoughts that come up, feelings that come up, Mm -hmm. emotions, Mm -hmm. and a lot of effort is put into trying to control those Mm -hmm. or regulate them or or discipline them in different ways Mm -hmm. without ever actually going back to the source of where they're coming from, Mm -hmm. and uh, the whole teachings or metaphor about the Kundalini is how much our experiences get impacted on a deep level and shape the different thoughts and emotions that come up. And those are literally spoken of as knots or grunties. The Sanskrit word is grunty, which means like a string tied up in a knot. And it's how we get caught up inside or bundle up inside mm-hmm. and the process of tracing back to the source of your thoughts, which doesn't mean the thought that came before it mm-hmm. is what's, what's the wellspring. Yeah. yeah. What's the wellspring out of which thoughts come and you encounter the different knots that shape the thoughts that come up and cause the emotional reactions. I mean, anybody who understands trauma understands at least on that level, what's going on. And of course for the rest of us, it's not all about trauma, but it's about that same Process, But getting beyond those knots, um, the meditative experience takes you to that place out of which creative responses arise. I mean, we express ourselves creatively at every moment, which doesn't mean doing fabulous things like making great pieces of art. It's as simple as cooking a meal or playing with a child or just Mm -hmm. how you encounter nature Mm -hmm. or experience yourself. And that's constantly that's a constant presence within you. I mean, that was my first sense of meditation was a sense that almost what I experienced as me, as an individual or as an ego, is almost like a mask through which this deeper light would shine. Try, right, and it's kind through. of like turning away from the mask and back towards the light that shines through the mask, right, right. which doesn't dispose of your ego. Rather, it just illuminates what's behind the ego, which is the real you, and the ego is just the form that it takes at any moment in time. Totally. And you, at least you want to be less opaque. Uh, it, the point is not to get rid of your ego because that's your sense of I. That's impossible. It's mm-hmm. silly. Um, but you want the ego to be more transparent mm-hmm. so that light shines through it instead of being distorted by the stuff, the problems, the knots, the things that we call our ego.
0: Mm-hmm. And that makes me, th- I mean, it makes me think of a lot of things, of course, mm-hmm. um, in one respect it makes me think about all of these experiences that i've had meditating and for me there's a lot of darkness i don't mean darkness pejoratively i mean just so much darkness and space that just feels like limitless and infinite and um as as informative as all of these teachings i've ever read or experienced myself about the light that there's this like Knowledge, this mm-hmm. um, embodied information that comes up and out, yeah. that feels as true as everything you're saying, and so I, yeah. I'm wondering about the the teaching from the tantric tradition because I've heard you ask it a couple or mentioned it a couple of times, including the Flesh and Bones Zen book, mm-hmm. which is so cool because at least you know my own personal experience was also to start. Um, I mean, I started yoga early, but simultaneously also fell into Zen meditation, Mm -hmm. and I was in New York City, same, but also abroad and some other places, and... I don't know if it was Korean Zen or Japanese, or you know, which was is. Was that on the
1: Upper East Side? Yeah. It's upper... actually at the same street as the ashram in the Upper West Side. Yes. And the day I resolved to like go do meditation, I went first to the Zen place because <laughs> that's where I went first. I <laughs> right. walked around the block for like 20 minutes, summoning the courage to actually go in and make oh, the right. step. I, know. I finally walk up to the door. And, of course, I hadn't just checked the schedule, so it's <laughs> locked because they're closed. I'm like, okay, I can't go in there closed, so I just crossed over the park to the other side, and the meditation center was open, and so oh. I went in, they had a program, and then I just stayed there. Oh, that's Me so... being the stubborn person I am, it's like whatever I pick, I go with that for totally. a while. So I totally like understand. Yeah. or well, maybe, <laughs> maybe it's, st- it's loyalty.
0: Maybe it's that stage loyalty. Yeah, know? that sort of thing. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, but to kind of get to your point, I mean, uh, the essence of tantric teaching or one thing that's distinctive about it. And I want to be clear that tantric philosophy is something that inspires the philosophy behind hatha yoga, but is not the same right, thing and that's because exactly. the features are very different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tantric teaching does require initiation by a guru into the teachings. Mm. Hatha yoga explicitly did not require that, which made it more democratic and available to people. Right. So So. Um, our tendency in the West to revere a Hatha yoga teacher as a spiritual guru uh. is just a, a rather tragic. Conflation. It's a conflation and a tragic mistake mm. uh, because those mm. teachers, as much as they're accomplished in their Hatha yoga and have some knowledge of philosophy, mm. they're not in a pre- position of what's traditionally the the place of a spiritual guru within Tantric philosophy. So there's kind of a conflation. That should come as a relief to people because uh, to take a Hatha yoga class, you don't have to be initiated by the teacher or right, follow exactly. him as the teacher. But uh,
0: I'm pretty sure that the majority of people in the yoga world have no problem with I know, that right it's now. Like, yeah, yeah, I can deal with that
1: just fine. <laughs> yeah. And um, at the essence of it, another word for Tantra is agama, which means a teaching. And it's based on the idea, kind of like what you're alluding to, where they said we have... In our heart of hearts, an intuition of essential truths of who we are, our relationship to the world. Their word for that was prasidi, and so it's it's sort of like a seed of the a seed of knowledge within the heart that hasn't fully come to consciousness or expressed itself yet. Mm-hmm. And prasidi? So the prasidi, yeah, mm-hmm. prasidi or forward city. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah, uh-huh. and uh, teaching as agama is to focus on the essence of what's being said in the teaching to so align your awareness with that intuition Mm. that that intuition starts to come to fruition for you. And so teaching is not imposition of ideas. It's not brainwashing in any sense. It's not imposing a set of beliefs upon you. It's rather a way of focusing your mind so you turn your attention to recognize what you already know. Right, and have that brought into full awareness. And so that's why, you know, even in what we're talking about, my relationship with the guru right. was more that inner focus on what I was coming to understand within myself. Right. And at most, the guru provides a mirror by which you start to turn inwards mm-hmm. to make that look.
0: Mm-hmm. As I was going to say, you know, the literal translation, destroyer of darkness. Yeah. And would you... Um, Make synonymous with, with um, darkness the obstacles that you were talking about before, the things that prevent that you know, consciousness, yeah, that it's knowledge. It's movement from, con- from
1: darkness to light. And actually, there are a lot of permutations that we can take mm-hmm. in different ways. So it is the darkness of not being aware of what you already know right. to the light of finally recognizing right. the truth. And the truth becomes true for you because there is a recognition that... On some level, I already knew that. Right. As opposed to being brought to believe something by an imposition from the outside. Yeah. The other part uh, speaks back to the language you're using. What was happening for me in college at the time, as much as at Fordham they had one teacher, most of them were Jesuits, Mm -hmm. uh, one Indian teacher was teaching Eastern philosophy, and he was very good, his father Chetty Madam. And there are a number of... Other teachers, uh, some of which were teaching Christian mysticism. Mm-hmm. And at that point at that point in time, Matthew Fox came out with a translation of Meister Eckhart's mm-hmm. sermons. Meister Eckhart lived in the 13th century. He's not the same as Eckhart Tolle. (laughs) So we're not talking about the same guy here. Uh, But But be here now. Everyone should be here uh, now anyway. (laughs) Reminder. He was a Christian mystic who lived in the south of Germany in the 13th century in times that were actually very much like ours. They were undergoing uh, climate change, which was affecting the environment, Uh, economic upheaval. They literally had the problem of the 99% where 1% had all the wealth and the other 99% were struggling. So there was a lot of um, unease and with that a lot of spiritual richness and it was coming out both among female mystics as well as among male Christian mystics and Eckhart was one of them. The reason why I bring it up was, first of all, it made a connection between what I was learning philosophically yoga, from my experience of the ashram to what I was learning in college on a sort of mystical level. But interestingly, the the language that uh, Eckhart used was much closer to that yogic language where he was talking about this level of experience where it is darkness. Mm. And in the same way in Tantra, you reach this level where you you reach this deep darkness, Mm -hmm. which is scary Mm -hmm. or can be scary Mm -hmm. at the same time inspiring. Mm -hmm. And there's something beyond that, Mm -hmm. even beyond that darkness. Mm -hmm. And Eckhart spoke in very feminine terms. He Mm -hmm. spoke of God more often as the mother than the father. Mm -hmm. And God is giving birth. Mm -hmm. And his language was often about spaciousness, Mm -hmm. about coming to a place of spaciousness Mm -hmm. and it's more of, he said, the important point of Christianity is the birth of Christ, not the death. Mm-hmm. And it's that birthing that takes place within the heart, which mm-hmm. is that awakening mm-hmm. to that inner spaciousness and creativity and invitation to participate in the world instead of renounce it, all of which was going m- much along the same lines as what I was getting from the Tantric teachings. Mm -hmm. And there may be a connection between uh, the Celtic sources of Christianity in Europe at the time. And um, there's a relationship between the Celtic tribes, perhaps, and the Aryan tribes. That's the Aryan tribes within India that gave rise to the Vedas and even... Elements of tantra over time, so it's not surprising they would speak in the same mm-hmm. terms.
0: Yeah, I've heard I've heard you talk about that mm-hmm. before. This, the, the, the in, in yoga class, which which makes me think about the thing you said earlier about in in the beginning, not uh, necessarily and obviously seeing the connection between you know more elastic hamstrings and enlightenment. Yeah. You know, and so you were oh, you you learn to teach hatha yoga for which you are most well-known now. Um, That's what uh, people
1: are interested in. Well, (laughs) it's exactly.
0: I know. I I paused over saying that because I'm not sure if that's what you're most well-known. I mean, you're known for your yoga and therapy. I mean, Mm -hmm. and I'm super curious to like in our, you know, at the, the second part of our double episode of getting to, you know what you're teaching in mm-hmm. these you know I'm going to say in any way world renowned classes Doug. I know you <laughs> <laughs> the world travel classes but I'm, I'm I'm curious about that but you know and we'll get there but the question that I have about your arriving at teaching a yoga of an integrated expansive expanding and yet simultaneously you know organically grounded body in the context mm-hmm. of hatha yoga and meditation um i'm just wondering like what that looked like in the beginning because all of the stuff you've talked about clearly went into that first time you taught a yoga class or first time you made some kind of commitment to the idea that what you were doing in the class was this actually enlightened act or set of acts
1: that's a real journey because the first part of teaching is dealing with the messy process of just understanding how to get up and teach and be effective as a teacher mm. and connect with students. Mm. Totally.
0: It's so, yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. And and uh, I think initially I was focused more on the practicalities of just being a good teacher so mm-hmm. people could follow the class and do it. <laughs>
0: And you'd been thinking about teaching for a long time anyway. I mean, you were you were teaching already, yeah, at, yeah. you know, back in the states and
1: teaching on a philosophy level, yeah, and then yeah. the yoga classes—that's yeah. a different modality because you're talking to people through their bodies, and it was it was funny oh because God. you know. Talk as about training. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, back then it was a time where it was becoming popular to have a theme for the class, which still carries on today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was certainly because as I got into Anasara Yoga, it was uh, John Friend came to the same ashram, was inspired by the spiritual message over the ashram. Oh, did he really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, did
0: you meet him there?
1: Yeah, yeah. He was. Uh, he had been oh, studying in Pune that. with the Iyengars. Yeah. And then he had some time before he came back to the States after his time in Pune. Oh, you're kidding. And he came to the ashram. Oh, you know, because okay. he heard it was a good, it was a good in between landing spot before going back to the states, and he was in because it was known he was an uh, Iyengar teacher. He was yeah. invited to do a demonstration in the courtyard of Asana, okay. and I remember I I came to that, and then after that over time he was invited to start training the teachers there. And so it was,
0: and you were already teaching when he arrived.
1: Uh, I actually hadn't quite started oh, yet. Okay. Uh, there was mm-hmm. a wave of teachers that studied and started teaching before me, so I was kind of like the second wave of trainees. Uh-huh. Uh, partly the problem was I was valuable working in the garden, so they didn't <laughs> oh, right. want to let me go. So yeah. I, I had literally had to struggle just to get accepted into the training because oh, they were wow. like, "No, we need you here." Oh wow. uh, but in any case, at, at the time there was that emphasis. Not just when the within the ashram but in yoga in general to have a theme and to give a little spiritual theme talk at the beginning of your mm-hmm. class, and balancing that out between giving a short but meaningful talk at the beginning and actually getting into the meat of the yoga mm-hmm. class has mm-hmm. been eternally stressful for all teachers. Oh my God! I know. Because otherwise, either you end up talking too much at the beginning of class about spiritual topics, or you say something trivial. In right. any case, right. Um, I was a bit more focused on just being effective at just teaching the asana because that was relatively new to me. And I have to say I started out symmetrically stiff. I did not have a flexible body to start with. Mm. And so that was part of my learning process was what did I do or how did I approach my own body to get more flexible. So that informed me. And I think it it helps you to start out stiff. It does. As a yoga teacher, I say it. I, you know? I
0: say it coming from the same place. I yeah relate to that. Even
1: now, it's it's helpful to you know after a long plane trip, you walk into class and teach, and you yeah. bend over. And I you're you like oh, Your no. hamstrings <laughs> talk to you, and you're like oh that's what it's like. You I know. know? Exactly. So you can relate to the students, um, but in any case, the the whole point is uh, the journey of integrating how you understand the the yoga on a shall we say philosophical or spiritual level and how you teach it on a practical practical level that meets people where they need to be met that's a long process and you don't quite start out from there if you start out by talking too much about the philosophy and spirituality it's it's hard for people to integrate it into their practice Mm -hmm. and sometimes i think we end up the problem is also teaching the philosophy as a way of selling the yoga in other words, convincing people to get interested in it mm-hmm. can be a mistake because it sounds more like you're advertising for why you should do yoga mm-hmm. when a better approach is to just get people to start doing it. And then they'll appreciate for themselves how it's helping. And there was, there was actually a teacher that Muktananda met back in the 1920s There was one of these sort of... Um, Quirky sadhus who didn't go around acting like a guru. He just acted like a normal person, though. People kind of had a sense he was a little bit different, Um, but he would only share teachings with people if they really started to inquire and kind of pulled it out of him. Otherwise, he just stayed normal. Uh, And and somebody asked him. Sounds so superhero. I know. There's a
0: lot of shows on Netflix that might address that that exact transformation.
1: (laughs) And and one person asked him, uh, you know, who kind of saw who he was, and he said, "You have so much to give. It's like why aren't you sharing this?" spirituality with the world and he he said i give people what they want so they want what i have to give which is a really good approach to teaching because Mm -hmm. on the one hand there's the complaint about yoga especially in the west but it's also can be true in the east where it's getting commercialized in the sense that we're just giving people what they want and so it's turning into a an exercise class that the, the
0: consumer-based yeah thing. The, the
1: customers are dictating right. what they're getting instead right. of the teacher teaching right but you have to meet the te- the students halfway as far as addressing what they need because sometimes that's what they need first before you totally. talk about the other stuff uh and and so that's for me it's been a process that's still not over of just this integrating and finding out how much and how to balance the two?
0: Totally. I mean, I. It, I mean, I mean, this is such a oversimplification of the of the situation. But I've been teaching, you know, for nineteen years, 18, 18 or nineteen years at this point, and um, came from a radically different place, career wise, but not yeah. not intellectually, emotionally. I was, you know, <laughs> headed toward this. I'm, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but but you know, but I had been. Um, I've been after the spiritual and answers and questions I had relentlessly from my early double digits, you know? Mm-hmm. And so anyway, um the the Hatha the, the premise of Hatha Yoga I tell people all the time is is based on a much more mobile society. I mean these poses and postures were yeah sort of emerged from a time when people walked everywhere and didn't live much past 40 anyway. Yeah. And so you've got people coming in with bodies like they're well over 40, if not well over 60 when they're only 25 because they've been sitting and hunched over a desk or whatever. So it just seems like sort of moving the body around at all is by definition the service in on the path of reaching some place of – enlightened awareness because mm-hmm. how aware can you be of your body when the obstructions are really simple in the musculature? The mm-hmm. spine isn't sort of lengthened in the way it's designed to, the abdomen isn't working at all or, you know, isn't working to hold you up. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, all those things, yeah. you know, is, is that kind of Yeah.
1: Yeah. The nervous system is irritated. The, the circulation is not working well. Yeah. And uh, I mean, certainly from the Middle Ages, there was this, hathio was different in emphasizing more active postures right. uh, in association with energy moving through the body. Mm-hmm. In, in terms that interestingly had been introduced early on in the Upanishads, but not actually used in the description of practice for centuries right. because he had the kinds of description you get from Patanjali where he doesn't talk about the movement of prana, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And then Yeah, as, at all. Yeah, I'm, as much as there were ideas yeah. like the vayus that were showed up in the early Upanishads, they get sort of mentioned in passing by Patanjali in the third book on supernatural powers but not used as part of practice. And all right. of a sudden they're brought up again in the Hatha Yoga tradition as uh, this free flow of energy through the body is essential to a clear mind. Just like water is only pure when it's running; when it sits in in a pool, it becomes stagnant. So there's right. a sense of energy moving through the body is mm. actually what keeps the mind clear, which right. we're finding more and more is true. Now we have watches that remind us to stand up once an hour I know, and, and the walk thing around. On your, on your bag that yeah. beeps when you. <laughs> yeah, and otherwise your mind just gets a little bit foggy. Right. And uh, it was, I mean, there was that whole period uh, from 1400 into the 1800s. And then there was a shift as we came into the modern era. Actually, the first the first actual yoga class happened on Christmas Eve in Bombay in an upper middle class community Mm. um, with this teacher named Yogeshwar, who had been going to school. And then he got uh, enlisted by this guru to be part of the guru's ashram and to teach Ayurveda and Hatha Yoga as a healing practice. And the guru actually wanted him to take over and be the successor because the guru was getting old. Legend had it. He was already 200 years old. (laughs) Who can say? In any case, he knew he was like reaching the end of his career, the arc of his career. And Yogeshwar realized he really didn't want to be a guru 24-7 to these people in this ashram. Is like constantly being on. And so he said, after doing it for a year, he said thanks. And he left. (laughs) And he had some friends in Bombay and one was a friend of uh, because there was a rising middle class in Bombay with with trade and when was this this was 1918 -hmm and uh, so you had this rising middle class with yeah. middle class health problems uh, because you had, now you had people working in factories like not before or these businessmen that worked at desks all the time right. and they had problems with with diabetes and everything else like that. So his friend invited him to do a little private lesson with this guy to see if he could help with his health. And this guy had all kinds of problems. So he went through a few asanas, talked to him about his diet, did some breathing exercises, and the guy immediately felt better. Mm which is not entirely surprising because before that he's doing nothing. Right, exactly. And so this guy said, you should really do a class for my friends. And so they, they used the guy's beach house in the upper part of Bombay to do this first yoga class. And then Yogeshwar is like, this works for me. I'm going to do a class. It'll be like an hour and a half. People will pay me a certain amount of money so I can live on it. And after the class, I'm done with them and they're done with me until the next class. Right. And that's, you know, there's this idea that yoga classes started in the West and this commercialization, this idea of a class that you pay a fee for is some Western idea. No, that started in India. Oh, yeah, totally. It was a very practical matter. But that also recognizes that shift as much as like you're saying, life was like that for people in India from, you know, up to the eighteen hundreds, but you reached the modern industrial revolution yeah. and yoga as much as people practice it in India at that time of the time of the whole industrial revolution. Yeah also shifted to meet people exactly where they were at. Right, exactly. And he addressed their health first, though he was deeply interested in doing the spiritual teachings. Right. Uh, he was also aware that he wasn't entirely qualified to be a spiritual guru. He's like, I'm still working on this stuff myself, but mm-hmm. he still tried to promote these ideas. He's an interesting character.
0: And what was his name again? Uh,
1: yeah, his spiritual name was Yogeshwar. Yogeshwar. Yeah. And uh, it, it comes from a book, I can look it up later, it's a history, it's modern yoga, mm. and it kind of gives the modern story of yoga. Yeah,
0: I've read a couple, but I haven't read that one, I'd love yeah, to Yeah, but that. there is that
1: continuity from the yeah. earliest half of yoga, from active postures to recognizing more and more how... The health of the body is crucial to any kind of mm-hmm. spiritual evolution or mm-hmm. progress or even right. just overcoming our stuff.
0: Even overcoming our stuff, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm thinking that speaking of books and speaking of the fact that you've written a lot of books and speaking of Hatha Yoga, the very first class, starting just over 100 years ago, we ought to conclude this totally heady, amazing conversation <laughs> about meditation and um your whole life story leading you to Hatha yoga and then spend the second part of our double header to talk about your Hatha yoga. If that's what we want to call it, we'll define that at the beginning of the next episode career and the books you've written, the travels you've um, had and the things you're teaching now. Okay. Does that sound good? Sounds All right, good. with Doug Keller, this is the DC Yoga Podcast. That was the first of two episodes we're doing with this um, illustrious yoga teacher, World Traveled. And this the second episode coming up will be posted in about uh, two weeks.